0: Welcome to this podcast produced here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Richard English, Professor of Politics at Queen's, and I'm delighted to be joined today for this In Conversation podcast by one of the world's leading scholars, Professor Bruce Hoffman of Georgetown University. Professor Hoffman has been studying terrorism and insurgency for over four decades. He's a tenured professor in Georgetown's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service where during 2010 to 17, he was the director of both the Centre for Security Studies and of the Security Studies Programme. Bruce Hoffman is also visiting Professor of Terrorism Studies at the University of St Andrews, where he used to work and where he co-founded the Centre for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence. We're going to focus today primarily on Professor Hoffman's hugely influential book, Inside Terrorism, a study originally published in 1998 and now in its third edition published by Columbia University Press in 2017. But he's also authored many other important works, including the prize winning study, Anonymous Soldiers The Struggle for Israel, 1917 to 1947, which was published in 2015, and a shelf of major articles on terrorism, on political violences and on responses to them. Professor Hoffman has also been a prominent figure in the world of public policy. This included his appointment by the US Congress to serve as a commissioner on the Independent Commission to review the FBI's post 9-11 response to terrorism and radicalization. And Bruce Hoffman was a lead author of that commission's final report. And Bruce Hoffman is also editor in chief of Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, the leading scholarly journal in the field. And he has held numerous distinguished visiting positions at institutions in and beyond the USA. Bruce, as I say, I'm going to focus our conversation today primarily on your indispensable book Inside Terrorism. It was first published in 1998 and it argued that the nature or the character of terrorism was changing, that there were new kinds of motivation, potentially new levels of threat. Could you briefly explore that that for us and expand on that central argument from the book?
1: Yes, of course, and thank you for having me on this podcast, uh, Richard. The main argument of the book was that the nature of terrorism was changing and that new adversaries with different motivations were surfacing that would change the nature of terrorism in the sense that they were motivated or inspired or indeed legitimized their violence based on religious precepts or theologies, and that this in turn would drive up the lethality or casualty rate uh, of of terrorism. I think what was remarkable or interesting in the book at the time is that it saw this as a phenomena that was not restricted to any one religion in any single geographical location, but rather that this was a global uh, phenomena. And it actually emerged as one of the most uh, controversial, at least at the time, aspects of the book. Uh, the book uh, received uh, largely good reviews. Uh, at the same time though, there was some profound pushback where people argued that religion was inconsequential, that this was just uh, scaremongering. I had recently uh, left St. Andrews University to return to the think tank world in the United States. I was accused of of trying to pad out research um, budgets, but it reflected over a worth of research in the mid-1980s as part of projects I was then working on at RAND, I began to comb through the RAND chronology of international terrorism and also its subsidiary domestic terrorism incidents list. And what emerged, pouring literally through thousands of incidents, is that a handful of them stood out because they sort of defied the reality of the time that terrorists were killing in the handfuls and that these were terrorist attacks that were killing in certainly in the in the tens and the scores and even the hundreds and what they all had in common was that religion was a salient dimension It was one of the motivational factors. Uh, interestingly, this was the subject of an article that I published in 1989, The Contrasting Ethical Foundations of Terrorism in the 1980s, that I think appeared in the second or third issue of uh, the scholarly journal Terrorism and Political Violence. Uh, it was the subject of a paper that I wrote in 1993 as part of a Department of Defense project that brought together experts from around the world uh, from Academe, uh, government, military, journalism, NGOs as well, that looked at what terrorism would be like in the year 2000. Interestingly, when that report was published in uh, 1994, it was buried. Uh, it was deemed as, 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 as too sensational, as too pessimistic. But almost everything that I had written in a paper that was contributing that contributed to that report, and the paper was called Holy Terror, which was published by Rand in 1993 and then two years later in studies in conflict and terrorism, um, talked about this emergence of religion. Of course, with the 9-11 attacks, with the rise of ISIS, with everything we've seen over the past two decades, we see how religion has played a very large role in justifying and legitimizing both terrorism and higher levels of violence.
0: And on that issue of religion and terrorism, which you're describing there, could you say something about the extent to which for actors for whom religious motivation is overriding, something about the way in which it affects how terrorist actors see themselves and their role? You've commented on the scale of the violence, but does it mean that people think differently about their actions if they're religious terrorists Mm -hmm. rather than other kinds?
1: Yes, I mean, absolutely, because we saw a phenomenon in the 1980s, I think, where clerics and religious figures were becoming increasingly involved in terrorism and transforming it from the secular, ideological or nationalist separatist phenomena. It had primarily been uh, for over a century into something different where um, terrorism became a divinely ordained commandment and that the perpetrators were defying their deity. Uh, were defying the word of God communicated by these clerical authorities if they not only didn't engage in violence, but engaged in large-scale violence. And this was something that I I thought was fascinating that we saw not just in Islam, whether in Shia or Sunni, but amongst Jewish messianic terrorists, for instance, in the occupied territories who plotted uh, wide-scale acts of terrorism that were designed to hasten, in some cases, uh, the apocalypse or Armageddon. Uh, We saw this in the transformation of the Sikh movement, the Sikh separatist movement in India from a primarily secular organization to one led by a very charismatic uh, cleric that also resulted in, until 9-11, the the international terrorist incident that had the infamous record of having killed the most persons at one time, and that was the 1985 in-flight bombing of an Air India flight. Um, We saw it occur um, with certainly with with cults as well, Um, and also in the United States, too, with the so-called Christian Patriot movement that used scripture to justify their racist, anti-Semitic, seditious, um, anti-government and, and, at times, survivalist agendas.
0: Thank you very much. Inside terrorism appeared several years before the 9-11 atrocity, and after 2001, there grew a much larger interest in the study of terrorism, of which you'd been one of the pioneers. Could you say something, Bruce, about your views of the 9-11 effect in terms of the academic study of terrorism, whether positive or negative or a combination of the two?
1: I think it's been entirely positive. Um, The terrorism studies community in the 1970s, 80s and 90s was a very small coterie of individual scholars. It was not very large. It was not terribly diverse either. Um, It was, I think, remarkably conservative, too, not conservative politically, but conservative in that it stayed within very narrow lanes. That was, I think, some of the criticism that was directed at Inside Terrorism, as it was arguing that the nature of terrorism was changing. And there was a a, a cadre of people that found that very discomforting. Uh, Since 9-11, I mean, the field has just expanded en- enormously. And I think this has been en- has been really a tremendously important on a number of levels. Firstly, it's certainly brought far more scholars into the field with more diverse viewpoints with different approaches. For instance, the emergence of uh, critical terrorism studies um, with different methodologies. Terrorism was for too long dominated, for instance, by political scientists. That still is the case to a certain extent, but we've seen an influx of psychiatrists and psychologists, of sociologists, certainly of economists, which was something that one did not see see before um, 9-11. Uh, People from different backgrounds and from throughout the world, I think the scholarly journals now publish articles in the scholarly presses that are far more representative of all regions of the world, both that have, have been affected by terrorism and where scholars from those regions who maybe didn't have a voice in the past have been able to weigh in. But I think most critically that it's trained now successive generations of students to be better informed, more intelligent more sensitive to many of the contending arguments in the terrorism field who themselves may not have gone on to careers in academe but have certainly gone on to careers in government and law enforcement and think tanks and non-governmental organizations certainly as journalists and in that sense i think the field has grown in a very positive way at the same time I often pause and think that some of the classic works in the field of terrorism studies, I think fascinating, remain some of the first works that were ever published. I mean, I constantly go back to the works of Walter Laqueur, for example, from the 1970s. Uh, Paul Wilkinson, of course, Martha Crenshaw, who's still an active scholar. Um, one I think the great collections on terrorism is the edited volume by. Uh, Walter Reich, um, that brought together the papers from a 1987 conference at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. So the field has grown and certainly improved, but it's it's remarkable that some of the canonical ta- texts from decades ago remain those that we still turn to today.
0: And you mentioned students there, Bruce, and in addition to the field work that you've done around the world, you've also spent periods teaching within the USA, but also elsewhere. I want to ask you something about the effects of the geography of scholarship on terrorism in terms of the research aspect of it, which you alluded to there in terms of the expansion of a kind of diversity of voices. How great an effect, in your view, does it have to study terrorism from Washington as opposed to St Andrews? Is there enough dialogue between the various geographically situated communities of scholars who do study terrorism and political violence?
1: This is, I think, exactly one of the strengths of the field that has also changed since 9-11, is there are far more academic institutions throughout the world, in capital cities as well as major metropolitan centers, but also in small towns and rural universities that have enriched the field by giving a a multiplicity of of perspectives. I mean, for me personally, it's been enormously useful for the past two decades to live in Washington, D.C., but I think because of my initial think tank background in the field, I've always been very comfortable um, in the policy realm and have always much like the pioneers in the field, like Professor Paul Wilkinson, who always thought there was a role for scholars of, of terrorism to have an impact on public policy. So I think in being situated in, in cities like Washington DC or London or Berlin or Paris um, or you know, or um, Islamabad, uh, Delhi and so on, I mean, it's enormously useful to have that effect. But I think in the digital world that we live in today, Even people that don't live in those cities, uh, not least during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, are able to interact as well and influence um, opinion. I always cherished uh, the five years that I spent in St. Andrews because it did provide the distance from the centers of power that allowed one to actually seriously think about these issues. Um, and to focus on what one thought was important and not necessarily be overly influenced by a government agenda. So I think for the field to thrive as it has, you have to have a presence in both places. Let me add, though, I think one of the big changes too in the field from pre-9-11 to post-9-11 is that scholars today are far more out in the different kind of field, in the physical field, that they do, in other words, field research and field work. Uh, There was really a time, lamentably, in the the 70s and 80s, when a lot of the terrorism research was conducted from university libraries and a lot of the dialogue and discourse was uh, occurred in faculty clubs. What we've seen in the past 20 years is people, and in many cases, at great risk to their own personal safety, going out and making contact with both the perpetrators of this violence, those that are charged with countering it, and certainly the victims, and learning first hand and understanding the contextual and environmental and historical and cultural dimensions that we've seen have fueled terrorism to the extent it has uh, in this century.
0: And Unlike some scholars, Bruce, you've stressed the resilience of one of the most famous of terrorist organizations or movements, namely Al-Qaeda. Could you comment for listeners on how you currently assess that movement's Mm -hmm. capacity and intentions? Mm -hmm.
1: Well I've I've actually been studying terrorism now for 44 years uh, since I was first a uh, graduate student uh, at Oxford in 1976 and I think the w- The one lesson that I've taken from those four-plus decades is that it's always a mistake to look at terrorism as a linear phenomena. And always to see it as some static um, uh, entity. It's always changing and evolving. It often is changing and evolving in response to the countermeasures directed against it, but also because terrorist groups themselves are opportunistic. And in that case, or in that instance, I think al-Qaeda has been, unfortunately, remarkably effective in adapting and adjusting to even the most consequential countermeasures that the world has directed against it in order to survive and to continue uh, to function and be compelling in essence. And what we've seen is that the very top-down hierarchical Al-Qaeda organization that existed in 9-11 over the past two decades has changed and evolved into something that is much flatter and more linear, where authority has been devolved to local al-Qaeda franchises and affiliates. And that, in many respects, the parts have become stronger than the whole or stronger than the center. That's not to say that the center doesn't have a role. I'm an al-Zawahri, the current leader, in at least imparting overall strategic guidance. But what we've seen is that al-Qaeda has gone from a terrorist group, pure and simple, to now – And a very top down one to now cultivating a much more grassroots constituency, becoming much more involved in local politics, paying far more attention to local grievances than it ever did when it was founded. And that this unfortunately has contributed to its longevity. That doesn't mean that Al Qaeda has given up in its core mission. Of attacking what it sees as a predatory, aggressive West. Um, It just means that right now, tactically, it has decided to focus on building up these local bases of support as a means to carry on their longer struggle. So we shouldn't interpret Al-Qaeda's quiescence in terms of not staging Spectacular um, hallmark types of international terrorist operations, as as in any way suggesting that al that the threat from Al Qaeda has disappeared or receded. I would argue rather that they are just uh, that they are marshaling their strength and resources to carry on a struggle that, after all, was proclaimed by Bin Laden more than a quarter of a century ago.
0: Thank you, Bruce. And to move to very different kinds of terrorist dynamics in inside terrorism you comment on some of the echoes between U.S. and European right-wing terrorists, for example, their shared xenophobia, their shared hostility to liberal governments. But in the book, you also comment on some of the differences between European and U.S. right-wing terrorists. Could you expand on that?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, this goes right back to my point about terrorism not being not being linear, because for the past 20 years, our attention has been riveted on the threat from Salafi jihadi adversaries such as al-Qaeda and and ISIS. But uh, interestingly, in my own case, the first Publication I ever had was on right-wing terrorism in Europe in 1982 and in the 1980s and 1990s I devoted considerable attention to violent far-right extremism and in fact every edition of the three editions of inside terrorism over the past 22 years has always had a large section on this threat and what we see now is after a period of of at least relative quiescence, or perhaps when we weren't paying enough attention to it, these threats are emerging in both Europe and the United States. And they're emerging, I think, in very different fashions than we've seen in, in, in the past. And they're challenging some of our conceptualizations of what terrorism is. In many cases, unlike the identifiable, stereotypical terrorist organizations of the past with an identified leader, with a commanding, control command and control structure with financial flows that we've been very successful in identifying and interdicting or arresting or eliminating in some cases what we're seeing both in the united states and europe is far more amorphous types of organizations that are actually online communities and that exist and thrive off of social media that may not be staging the huge car and truck bombings that so characterized much of international and domestic terrorism from the 1990s until the present, but are using simple off-the-shelf weapons such as car ramming, vehicular attacks, for example. Um, In places like the United States where firearms are more easily obtained than in other countries, they're staging uh, mass shootings, for example. And these are not individuals responding to direct orders communicated to them by terrorist commanders. as was very common in the 20th century, for example. These are people that are inspired, motivated, and ultimately animated by the endless echo chamber that we see on social media. And this, I think, both in Europe and the United States, raises profound challenges for law enforcement and intelligence. We've always been fixated or focused on the organizational dimension of terrorism. The United States, the State Department maintains the FTO, the Foreign Terrorist Organizations list, for example. But what if we're not talking about organizations in that sense, but we're talking about online communities? How do we counter this? How do we anticipate or interdict or prevent that kind of violence? So these raises, I think, enormous challenges Challenges as we see terrorism transitioning in the 2020s.
0: Thanks, Bruce. And you end the book Inside Terrorism commenting on the fact that for various complex reasons, the ambitions of the US-led post-2001 war on terror have been difficult to achieve. And in fact, you noted in the most recent edition of the book that the emergence of hybrid groups such as ISIS, which are terroristic but also conventionally military in their capacity, has presented new threats. Has the relationship between the war on terror and the emergence of new terrorist forms meant that terrorism has decisively changed again in the past 20 years?
1: Yes, because I think that we have to realize that terrorism is not a war to be won. And uh, my uh, doctoral supervisor, Professor, the late Professor Sir Michael Howard, uh, argued against this at the time that we can't declare war on a tactic. And I think that's misled us to an extent in believing that we can soundly defeat this enemy and then move on. What we see is that terrorism has indeed become a perennial fixture of 21st century security, no different from pandemics and infectious diseases as we're also uh, so painfully learning over the past few months. And for terrorists, terrorism to continue as it has means it has to change and adapt. This goes back to my earlier point that terrorism is never linear. And in that sense, we can see that whatever advantages or whatever strengths we developed and cultivated and brought to bear against terrorism over the past two decades were largely successful up until now. We haven't seen another 9-11 type attack. But at the same time, we see that terrorism hasn't gone away. And if anything, it's expanding. More countries are affected by it. There are more terrorist groups active today, perhaps eight times as many as there were. 9-11, at least just in the very narrow Salafi jihadi realm. And as we've been discussing, we now face competing terrorist threats from violent far-right extremists, to a certain extent there's been a revival of violent far-left extremism, although on a, on, a, on a less significant dimension, we see single-issue terrorist groups emerging. We see state sponsorship of terrorism, which was really something in the early years of the 21st century we thought was a thing of the past. I mean, we had taken down Iraq uh, with that uh, in, invasion. Um, we had persuaded uh, um, Libya and Muammar Gaddafi to forsake its its chemical and biological weapons. Um, And we thought that state sponsorship had ended, but now we see with the rise of the Iranian threat network that this is something that still exists as well. We also see now the realm of information operations and disinformation operations being perpetrated by a combination of non-state actors, backed in some instances and encouraged in others by actual states. So what we see is that unfortunately, Terrorism remains, I think, a significant challenge and will continue to do so as it has for the past two millennia.
0: Bruce, it's been a fascinating discussion. You've given us rich insights into your own research over many years, but also into the wider field of study. It's evolution, it's dynamics, it's complexity, it's heterogeneity. We look forward when we're able to get people on planes again to getting you over to Belfast in person. But for that excellent conversation and for taking the time to be with us today, very many thanks to Professor Bruce Hoffman.